0: Creatives, you're listening to The Truth is Golden, a podcast produced by Revelator Studio and hosted by yours truly. My name is Arno, welcome to this episode. It is a show about creative minds, what makes them tick, their successes, failures, and everything in between. It is for people who are interested to learn more about creativity and its potential to make the world a better place. For the last episode of our series on LA Creatives, I interviewed Frances Anderton, host of the NPR radio show Design and Architecture on the Los Angeles radio station KCRW. Frances talked about her upbringing in the UK, her early aspirations to be an architect, how she fell in love with broadcasting and Los Angeles in the early 90s, as well as living in a Gary-designed 1960s apartment building. Listening to hear Frances speak about what moves her...
1: So we're here with Francis Anderton, producer and host of the NPR radio show DNA in Los Angeles. Thanks, Francis, for being on the show. Pleasure You're to have welcome. you. very
2: welcome. It's lovely to meet you, Arno.
1: So, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do?
2: Gosh, well, let's say I grew up in the UK. I grew up in a city called Bath, very beautiful. I had an architect. Well, I had a. My father was very, very enthusiastic about buildings and. Um, bought and sold and remodeled Georgian houses. So I grew up in an environment that very much was concerned with the built environment. And absolutely, my father loved architecture. And I went over to your country, actually, as a child, many times to France. And he would take us to see the Chateau, of course, and the beautiful churches. And when I was an early teen, I went to see the Pompidou Centre in Paris. Now, Mm -hmm. the Pompidou Centre had to have been one of the most galvanizing architectural experiences. Anyway... I then, with that background, went to architecture school at the Bartlett in the early 1980s. Um, well, let's say one of the things that really took me by surprise almost as soon as that education started was the very different way in which people spoke about architecture relative to what I was used to. I was used to a very normal conversation surrounding buildings. My father didn't wasn't trained as an architect, so he spoke in a way that the regular person would understand. And when I got to architecture school, I found that um, the profession is steeped in theory and that with that theory comes language that can be often quite hard for people to understand. And I was, of course, um, put into that jury process, jury system of education and would present work and there'd be 10 people lined up who would then critique your project. And Again, in, in, in it, I almost felt like there was competition between the jurors for who could kind of out rhetoric the next juror, you know, rather than just get cutting to the chase and being being very straightforward in their feedback. So anyway, the early seeds were planted in my head uh, that that I was curious about communication and how architecture was communicated and how this um, field, the field of architecture, which of course serves the public um, architecture surrounds us and yet despite its very civic nature the profession that has the responsibility of building it in a way has kind of um, separated itself from Mm -hmm. the community that it essentially serves so I so I didn't right away know that I would wind up in journalism but I, I was very sort of preoccupied with this communications piece and then one thing led to another and I wound up Becoming an editor at the Architectural Review, which mm-hmm. um, the architecture world is familiar with, uh, quite a long-standing publication, and my first assignment was to go to Los Angeles in the late. This was in the late 1980s, and see what was then a very kind of subversive new wave of West Coast design: Frank Gehry, Tom Mayne, Mike Rotundi, um Craig Hodgetts, Ming Fung, Erica and Moss, those names have all become pretty much, I was gonna say household names. They are household names within the architecture community. And um, and a number of others. And I came to LA and was bewildered by it, puzzled by it, amazed by it, and loved it. You know, it was a it was a region, because you can't just call it a city, it was a region that runs counter to Urban values that we grow up with in Europe, mm-hmm. in you know, pretty much in every way, mm-hmm. and yet there was something so seductive about it. Um, so I wound up moving here four years later. After that first visit, I got here in 1991, and my and I was by now in the realm of communication of architecture, but my but within the architecture profession, I hadn't yet sort of pierced the bubble, as it were. Mm-hmm. So I was my my first job when I came here was to edit a very modest size publication for the local AIA American Institute of Architects called LA Architect. And I threw myself into that with a great passion. And it however it was a publication that was largely geared towards the local um, profession. And I and I was kind of getting the um, I was I was starting to sort of build a sense that I wanted to kind of engage with a larger audience. But I haven't figured out how.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And then 11 months into my stay here, which took us into April 1992, we had this colossally important, devastating event, which was the Rodney King riots of April 1992. And where a African-American man had been beaten by the police and um, there was a trial of the police and all the police were found not guilty. And it caused these massive massive revolt essentially and the people took to the streets and lots of there was lots of fires you know um, mini markets were torched and people were really really angry so anyway that event was um, galvanizing for many of us actually in the architecture community because um, because it, it was at that time rather Focused on, preoccupied with sort of formal experimentation, and LA was a laboratory for that. And what the Rodney King riot, civil unrest, it's also called, um, revealed was massive urban problems. And those were issues around the economy, e- equity, racial problems, tensions on so many levels, underlying conflicts that a that a writer at that period, Mike Davis, had started to draw our attention to with his mm-hmm. book, City of Courts. But, but that event made it real. And so anyway, why I'm telling you all this is because I, like many other people, felt was, I was changed by that event and, um, and, and was seeking ways to kind of integrate what had happened into what I was doing then. Well, around about that time, or rather directly in response to the riots, this radio station where we're sitting now, KCRW launched a program called which way LA and which way LA helmed by a marvelous journalist called Warren Olney went on air for what was going to be just a few days to basically have a dialogue with our audience about what had happened, Mm -hmm. what had occurred, what had caused this, 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 this awful, um, um, uprising. And, um, Anyway, that show went from being a few days to being a few weeks to being a few months to becoming an institution and a permanent fixture. And I just became obsessed with this show. I was became utterly convinced that this was where I wanted to be. I wanted to be involved with this program that was having a dialogue that went way beyond the boundaries of architectural formalism. Mm -hmm. So I did what a lot of people do at the station to get involved which is what I, which is i volunteered so mm-hmm. i started volunteering a few hours a week a day or so a week and while i did that i started writing actually for more mainstream publications mm-hmm. like the new york times and then later dwell magazine mm-hmm. about design so i started look, like, taking these steps to writing for more mainstream publications while building up experience at the station on this show which Well a and then one thing led to another and I wound up becoming an almost full-time producer on LA while maintaining this writing work outside. And then, and it's a sort of another long story how this happened, but then in 2002, the management of the station decided to sort of tap, I guess, my, my dual experience of being involved with radio and then this background in architecture and decided to launch a, a program about design and architecture. So that was where the roads all led, finally, mm-hmm. to this place where I would try and bring the two together. So that was a long answer to your yeah, it was first a great question.
1: <laughs> so I, I want to backtrack to the uh, riots for a second. And how you said they were a catalyst for change in the city. How has the city changed since... What are the most important things that happened, uh, positive or negative?
2: Well, I would say that the changes are probably as indirect as much as they are direct, as in a lot of things that happened in L.A. started to happen maybe five or six years after the riots, So you couldn't directly tie them, but arguably they were connected. So, for example, there was tremendous concern around the Rodney King riots about the way in which the police engaged with especially minority communities in a sense that the police were almost like an invading army. And there was lots and lots of discussion about how to rectify that. And you had a committee of people that were essentially members of the community that would oversee the police. Mm -hmm. And one of the outcomes of that was to initiate a building program of rebuilding the local police stations. And those local police stations were designed in a way that that I would argue was directly affected by the revelations following the riots. Mm-hmm. And so the so this, this new wave of police stations definitely tried to physically engage in mm-hmm. a far more accessible and less hostile way mm-hmm. than the previous wave of mm-hmm. police stations. So there was that. The same happened with schools because what came out of the riots was this connection between what happened with Rodney King himself and then a then a general community frustration at police community relations. But all these other things surfaced as well, like the d- deprivations of the schools in the same neighbourhood. So the schools also embarked on a schools building programme. And while there were sometimes sort of budgetary limitations, they couldn't always do super capital A architecture, the schools went up in, sta- in quality as a result. There was a lot of architects that were very affected by this. I mean, one who has talked about it publicly, is um, Michael Maltzen, who's quite a well-known L.A. architect. Mm -hmm. And around about the time of the riots, he got involved with an institution called Inner City Arts. And Inner City Arts was... It was a non-profit arts sort of teaching centre that would serve the public schools around it. So if you were in one of the public schools in downtown, you would be put in a bus and taken to Inner City Arts where you might do two hours a week Mm -hmm. of art or drama or music... Wonderful, it's a wonderful, wonderful institution, but it they were operating out of huts, you know, they were operating out of what was it trailers for, for mm-hmm. initially, I think. and then they embarked on a building program well, the but they embarked on that building program just when the riots happened, and people got really um engaged with what the goals of that school were. so so they wound up with a fantastic building. Designed by Michael Molson with input at the start by the other architecture firm, by another architecture firm, Marmol Radziner. Incredible garden by a local garden designer, um,
0: mm-hmm. Nancy
2: Powers, and it's gone from strength to strength. This institution, and it's right in the heart of Skid Row in downtown. Well, that school would not have garnered the interest that it got were it not for mm-hmm. that event. So there's there's multiple examples of that. Tom Mayne, who's a very well known LA architect. He will say that he was changed by the L.A. riots. He was one of the leaders of the kind of sculptural architecture mm-hmm. group, you know. And um, he he very, it seems not long after the riots, he, he pivoted to become much more interested in the urban scale. Then there was a change of political leadership. Mm-hmm. The riots, when I was first here, when the riots happened, we had a mayor called Tom Bradley. And Tom Bradley was a very important mayor in LA's history, African American. And it was a huge change for the city when he first became mayor. He was the first African American mayor. He himself had come from the LAPD himself. He he definitely changed the course of history in LA. However, by the time 1992 came around, he was kind of had run out of steam a bit and mm-hmm. kind of prompted by everything that happened around that time. There was a fellow step forward called um, Richard Reardon. He was a businessman and he put himself forward to become mayor. And the times sort of worked for him and he wound up becoming mayor. And he said, what the city needs is to be taken in hand with the business. During the new mayor's tenure, there was a surge in um, attention to civic architecture. Mm-hmm. So we got Disney Console, we got the Getty Centre. What's happened since that time has been a shift into the civic realm Mm -hmm. that didn't characterize LA up to that point. The riots were not the only cause. There was absolutely other factors, but I think they functioned as a massive wake-up call and they sort of stimulated Mm -hmm. a lot of sectors Mm -hmm. into doing stuff. Now, the really fascinating thing is that in the early 90s, one of the biggest complaints you heard over the less affluent from the less affluent neighborhoods in LA is No one will invest in our Mm neighbourhood. The grocery stores won't come in. Um, We don't have any services um, while these fancy neighbourhoods have everything, which was kind of true. But now what's happening is these lower-income neighbourhoods have become the object of of interest of anyone looking for a cheap place to live. So people are now moving into these neighbourhoods. Now, with that is coming grocery stores and is coming the kind of community amenities that Mm -hmm. weren't there. However... It's bringing gentrification. Mm -hmm. So the big struggle in L.A. right now is over gentrification. That's like the big thing. So back in the early 90s, it was crime. It was gang warfare and it was um, all the troubles that then the lid popped off Mm -hmm. in 92. Now it's a different set of, I I guess, related issues. Mm -hmm. But the poor neighborhoods are being invaded by Starbucks and art galleries. So it's created a new set of problems
1: we have the same problems in yeah. Toronto because it's a very fast-growing city and people are looking for cheap places to live yeah. because the downtown is unbearably expensive. It's, yeah, that's uh, those are issues that uh, I don't think anyone has solved yet, but people are working on it. So it's yeah.
2: kind of exciting. Well, it's because it's, it's the global city problem. <coughs> people want to live in cities mm-hmm. and there's more people wanting to live in the cities than there are affordable places to live mm-hmm. or high-salary jobs.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It seems like... People who are earning the high salaries are okay. It's the fact that a city needs pe- lots and lots of people on low salaries too, and they're not being accommodated.
1: Well, what the solution is remains to be seen, but uh, uh, are there people working on that in LA?
2: There's people working on it night and day. There's people thinking about it, and they've got all sorts of different solutions. But, and I'm sure this is the same in Toronto, there is a debate that is not resolved between those that say, bill, build, build." and build un, uh, um, untrammeled, you know, just just let the developers get to work and build and the market will sort it out. Mm-hmm. There'll be so much housing that some of it's going to wind up being more affordable. Mm-hmm. And there's others that say, no, 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 that's not going to work. If you let them just build, everything will rise to the top. Everything, all the people from outside of those cities that can afford the higher rents, they will all come in and they will All that development will make the place more desirable so it won't trickle down. Mm -hmm. It it won't sort. It Mm -hmm. won't sort into affordable and more expensive depending on the market. So there's a divide between those two camps. Then in L.A., I don't know if this is true of Toronto, there's this other camp that is very large that is retrograde that wants L.A. not to change. Mm -hmm. And the not to change, the NIMBYs, you know, is a force, because oh, yeah. because LA has so many single-family neighbourhoods, and the single-family neighbourhoods are quite happy with the single-family neighbourhoods. And they take up so much space that the denser stuff is forced into, the, into what's left, and then there's still traffic problems.
1: Toronto has the exact same problem, believe it or not. In the downtown area, we have kilometres of single-family neighbourhoods, and people do not want that to change, understandably, because... It's, because they're happy. They're happy. But to me, and I'm sure to you, it's the same coming from Europe and living in much denser cities where a single-family home outside of the suburbs is not really an option. It's baffling. I just don't understand. And things are going to have to change because if cities keep densifying and growing, you're going to have to put people somewhere. Why? Right. That's very interesting. Those are problems that we'll deal with. But the NIMBYs in Toronto are... Um, there's a whole segment of the population that hates them because they're just insane.
2: Yes, yes.
1: I'd like to go back a little bit to um, your early life and your childhood, and then we can come back to L.A. and what you do now a little bit after. Um, can you tell us what you were like as a kid? <laughs>
2: um, well, I was always very social. I always had lots of friends. I always um, was a chatterbox. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm quite hardworking now, and I'm quite focused It's not that I didn't enjoy school. I actually did enjoy school, but I wasn't like my sister, who was highly competitive and highly focused and highly academic. I wasn't any of those things. I hadn't really found my focus until quite a bit later. I was quite tomboyish as a girl. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a boy Mm -hmm. until I was actually called a boy (laughs) by someone on one of our trips to continental Europe, and then I suddenly didn't want to be a boy anymore. (laughs) Um, So um, what else? Tell me so what, what you're
1: did, looking for. what did you want to be growing up? Did you know you wanted to get into architecture?
2: For a time, I wanted to be a film director.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I also, I definitely, when I was a child, it's kind of bizarre looking back on it, but I was kind of intrigued by television interviewers. You know, I did, that That vaguely struck me as something that's that I'd like to do, but I couldn't see, at that point, I don't think I saw myself as having this necessary skill set. Mm-hmm. I do remember feeling very impressed by people that could speak very clearly and put together a very cogent argument and could argue mm-hmm. on their feet. I mm-hmm. remember thinking that was really, really desirable. Mm-hmm. Like, I would like to have that skill. And I still would. You know, I still look at people, pundits who go on TV, mm-hmm. and they just open their mouth and complete, it's not just a complete perfect sentence, it's a complete perfect essay comes out <laughs> of their mouths, and there's not a stop, not mm-hmm. a pickup. And there's an incredible kind of clarity of thought. I've always admired that Mm -hmm. and thought, I'd like to do that too.
1: So at what point did architecture come to mind and you realize that that's what you want to know?
2: Well, I will say that I don't consciously remember thinking, I would like to be an architect. Because I didn't really know what an architect did, you Mm -hmm. know. What I do remember is living in these really quite beautiful Georgian houses that my father would do up, and they'd always be in a state of disrepair. So I was very conscious of sort of living on a building site, albeit kind of a pretty nice building site, because the building was sort of going on indoors, but there was a lot of dust around. But And then I remember driving up to London and driving through the outskirts of London, where there was what here in America called projects, you know, Mm -hmm. what in the UK we'd call council blocks, and being puzzled by the difference between what I was growing up in in Bath and these council blocks in London and then the the kind of mile upon mile of the little kind of 1930s, 40s suburbs of London.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And just being struck at the difference and under, understanding vaguely that, that I was very fortunate and lived in a very beautiful environment mm-hmm. where, and I was very aware of the tremendous amount of of green that we had in Bath and the relationship of the building to the green and the beautiful... Alleys and the the proportions of the streets. I mean, it was sort of filtering into my mind that your environment really mattered. I couldn't put my finger on how one created that, just mm-hmm. that it kind of mattered. And I do distinctly remember going to the Pompidou Centre. When did it open in the seventies? I must have 77, been seventy-seven. I think seventy-seven. And I went about. I think I went the year it opened.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So I would have been um, about fourteen or fifteen. Mm-hmm. And I remember going up that escalator and just thinking, this is incredible. This is incredible. I remember that experience anyone in Paris has where you come from one of the side streets. I can't remember the name of the side street, but you come from the side street and boom, there's this massive red and blue and green machine, Mm -hmm. a set of tubes that's an amazing experience and then you get in that escalator and then you're having a new amazing experience which is cinematic and you're Mm -hmm. climbing up and there's the city. I mean I remember thinking that was genius and I think that's I think that woke me up to modern architecture Mm -hmm. and and the possibilities. I don't think there was ever a time where I thought I would like even though I appreciated the Georgian architecture I grew up with I can't remember any time where I thought I would like to be designing buildings like this. Mm -hmm. But when I went to the Pompidou Centre, I thought, wow, that's cool, designing this. But I still didn't really fully know what that meant. I do remember being at high school. I went to a girls, all girls school. I don't know if anyone, anyone in my school ever went off to be an architect. And when I did sort of mention it to a teacher once, she just said, oh, well, Francis, you have to be very good at math and you're not. And that was kind of it. That mm-hmm. was the architecture conversation was over. Mm-hmm. But I had a fantastic art teacher and, and had a lot of, um, spent a lot of time in the art room. And we had a lot of flexibility with our topics. And I do remember I would paint and draw a lot of buildings. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of feeling my way there. But I had no idea how that translated into getting buildings made.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And when I, when I got to that part, I realized that that wasn't going to be me. Because I realised that to be an architect required hours spent then with a set square and a ruler mm-hmm. drawing a, a door detail, mm-hmm. you know. And to me, that wasn't the same experience as riding up the escalator at the Pompidou Centre. You know, it was <laughs> totally a different not. it was a different relationship to architecture.
1: Mm-hmm. I had that very similar experience. I think I was six years old when uh, my family took me to a trip, and we went on a trip to Paris, and we ended up at the Center, and uh, for me it was the fountain next oh, door. Oh,
2: you mean the, the, um, tingly, yeah, the tingly, the fountain, Tingly Fountain, which is also f- fantastic.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole experience was mm-hmm. amazing, but to a six-year-old that fountain is just...
2: Oh my God, I bet. Amazing, yeah. So where did you grow up?
1: In a town called Grenoble in the Alps. Oh yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So um, it's my understanding that you've spoken to of a uh, desire to come to the U.S. early in life. Mm-hmm. Where does that come from?
2: Oh, well, that also came from growing up in Bath mm-hmm. because we lived in houses in the center of Bath, and the center of Bath was a tourist destination. So from childhood, I met a lot of Americans because Americans back in the 60s, they were the only people with money. Mm-hmm. So the Americans were coming to Europe on vacation, and we U- Europeans, you know, we might go across the channel to France. Mm-hmm. I did go to France as a child, but... Um, But anyway, the Americans were all coming in their hundreds, their thousands to Bath. The buses would bring them in, Mm -hmm. you know, as it was a tourist city. And they would get out of the buses. And I'd hear these people with these American accents. Mm -hmm. And they just would kind of be around. And I was very struck by kind of they were sort of loud and kind of friendly. And they really made an impression on me. And then when I was a teenager, I worked, you know, I worked as a waitress Mm -hmm. in a lot of cafes in Bath. And met lots of Americans who were coming to the cafes. And I remember, I mean, you know what Europeans are like. Mm-hmm. Europeans are, kind of have a love-hate relationship with Americans. <laughs> on the one hand, there's so much about America that they kind of admire and are jealous of. And on the other hand, it's like they're loud, they're vulgar. They, um, you know, they they throw their money around. You know, this people used to say that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember defending, defending Americans and saying, What's wrong with that? You know, what's wrong with them being loud? It seems kind of, they seem kind of fun. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, from an early age, thought I like Americans. And then my parents had a couple of friends who sort of had an American friend, you know. And I remember liking their American friends and, and thinking these people are very open. And
1: So was L.A. in 89 your first trip to the U.S.?
2: No, L.A., it was actually 87. Eighty-seven. L.A. in 87 was my first trip to L.A., most definitely. It was my second trip to the U.S. And my first trip to the U.S. was for my 21st birthday because my parents knew that I'd always wanted to go to America. They got me the air ticket to go to America. Mm-hmm. And then a little bit after that, I came with my very good friend, Melanie, and we went to New York, and we stayed with a friend of hers, and we went to nightclubs for two weeks. It was back in the eighties when New York was an amazing, amazing, dangerous, you know, rough, edgy place. Mm-hmm. And we spent two weeks um, going from club to club, being we were plunged into the gay scene, and um, through a, through a friend of ours, and it was amazing. But I didn't do much architecture.
1: So in my research, I found out that you live in a Frank Gehry building. Is that correct? Right. Yes. How, what's that like?
2: Well, it's not a famous Frank Gehry building. It's not a contemporary. It's not a. It's not a Frank Gehry building that is a signature Frank Gehry building. But to me, it's a wonderful place to live. It's a. It's a six-unit apartment building that he developed and designed along with um, a guy called Faridun Ghafari that he had worked with. Uh, Gruen, Victor Gruen, when he mm-hmm. which was a firm he worked for mm-hmm. in the fifties. And in the late fifties, early sixties, they bought this piece of land in the neighborhood that I'm in, and they built this six unit development. As I say, it's not a signature piece of architecture, but it's an extremely well planned piece of architecture. In fact, what's interesting about it is its impact is internal. To be inside the apartments is to be inside a very well planned, efficient, because it's not big, mm-hmm. efficient really beautifully lit, naturally Mm -hmm. lit space, Mm -hmm. just the right amount of glass, not too much. He came out of the period, case study, he was taught by Gregory Ain, marvellous mid-century LA architect, but he didn't do just a wall of glass. He very much did um, a a combination of quite sort of thick wall and then glass, thick wall and then glass, and it makes for a wonderful rhythm of light and solid. Mm. They were speculative units, so it wasn't fancy, but certain details that just... Take them above the level of being your regular spec apartment. Mm -hmm. He indented the walls in certain places. So the walls are articulated. You've got a fireplace that dips back. And then you've got a picture rail running the entire circumference of the apartment. So Mm -hmm. functioning as a kind of a tie, a visual tie. Certain little details that make it far better than ordinary. Beautifully planned. And then it's a U-shaped building. And the center of the U contains external balconies so Mm -hmm. the residents all see each other you can't live an entirely solitary life there in that sense it builds on a wonderful tradition in la which is our courtyard our bungalow court model Mm -hmm. you know small houses around a courtyard and which has been which is a wonderful building type so anyway it's a mix of modern courtyard um really clever about the design is that even though these are apartments the four units on the upstands of the U, they're designed in such a way that you have windows on every side. Mm-hmm. So you feel like you're in a house, even though you're not.
0: Because
2: mm-hmm. that's the thing about apartments is when you've just got two walls that have got it, windows yeah. on, that yeah. you know you're in an apartment. Mm-hmm. Your light sources are blocked. Mm-hmm. So um, so anyway, there's things like that that have been really kind of just carefully planned. And, it's, and the social organisation is really good. You have complete privacy in your apartment, but they it's the windows are arranged in such a way that you also have connections to that central courtyard it's just it's just very nice so i've talked to frank about the building there's a lot of th- chunky wood the ba- the the balconies and then the decks every unit has a deck and it's and they are um fenced in these thick wooden balustrades And I've asked Frank about it, and he says this is inspired by Japan. The the struts of the wood that hold up the fence, they are banged onto the outside of the deck in a way that I can see what he means. I can see they're very hand-hewn and chunky. And then there's these overhangs. If you took away the overhangs, it would look like a modernist block. Mm -hmm. Those overhangs just make it a little bit more... um, faux traditional in some ways or Mm -hmm. something but anyway i love that apartment building i've never been able to leave i've once i moved in i was so comfortable there Mm -hmm. and it's so near work and then i have a daughter who's at school nearby so i've remained a renter in this apartment building which of course is crazy um that's not the way to make money in la you know i should have been like trying to invest in downtown but um that apartment building is very special frank that lived there himself and okay. so did various of his friends who moved in over the years. So it's got a really very interesting history. It's a storied building. His, own the- his own therapist lived in the apartment that I live in hmm. now.
1: That's a very interesting story. Um, it seems like it's an inspiring place. And speaking of inspiration, where do you find inspiration?
2: Where do I find inspiration? Well, definitely from other people. I love talking. I love brainstorming with other people. I have a very, very interesting husband who I have big fights with, but we have endlessly fascinating conversations. So he is inspiring. I have some, I have great colleagues. I have a producer, Avishai Artsy. We, we just, we just talk through ideas. When I worked with Warren as a producer, it was endless, just arguing, debating and
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, issues and ideas and figuring out how to turn them into radio stories and mm-hmm. what what was interesting, why it's interesting, why are we doing this story, what makes sense for radio, what makes sense for print, what makes sense for a mainstream audience, what makes sense for, for a more um, specialist audience, how do you bring alive something, you know, there's a story that matters, but how do you bring it alive? So there's constant um, constant sources of, of um of, of debate, I guess. And I would say that while I do read publications, of course, to find out what's going on, I do pick up a lot from people. Mm-hmm. I, defi- I definitely kind of love talking to people and just sort of hearing what's going on, you know, mm-hmm. and I do get some of my stories come that way, you know, so I, so I find that inspiring.
1: What's the place of creativity in your life and specifically in your career as a journalist?
2: Well, of course, I've chosen a career where I felt that I'm not necessarily the creative one. I'm actually interviewing the creative people. I sort of sometimes think, I sometimes envy people who are extremely, extremely instinctively creative, like many architects, many very talented architects or painters or um, um, musicians. You know, I couldn't do what many, many of those extremely talented creative artists do, um, my own husband, who is a who's, who writes, and just entire worlds can sort of build in the, in his head, and they get down onto the page. What what I have where I have found my creativity lies primarily is in um, figuring out how to tell stories. Of it can be other people's creativity, or it can be a news story so my creativity lies in creatively finding a way Mm -hmm. to make this interesting. I do lots of editing like you. I find editing itself to be a wonderful creative process. I love editing. I love Mm -hmm. taking an hour long interview and getting the best five minutes out of it. Mm -hmm. So I love that piece of creativity. And I love shaping stories. I love shaping narratives. I love bringing in five different voices and figuring out a way to piece them all together. I have, a, as I just mentioned, Avishai Artsy and we definitely work on this together. So Mm -hmm. bringing in that, you know, a team member and then my engineer, our engineer, Ray Guana or JC, you know, I don't do any of this completely on my own, Mm -hmm. but I certainly do a lot. I certainly do a portion of it on my own. And um, so I do find that immensely creative. And then I do a little bit of what my father did, which was um, my ideal way of spending a Sunday afternoon is doing um, decorating jobs in the house, you Mm -hmm. know, redoing, fixing up, getting some old beaten up old chair that's lying on the street and um, patching it up and um, retrofitting it, you know. So I've got a little bit of my father's kind of creativity in me that comes out periodically. Mm
1: -hmm. So speaking of things you do outside of work that keep you interested and engaged, are there any other things that you, you enjoy doing?
2: I love reading. I do love reading. There seems hardly any time to read these days. But I love reading. I love detective stories. I love, um, let's see, I have a daughter. So obviously that becomes fairly time consuming, you know, running Mm -hmm. her around town and stuff and dealing with being involved in her life. I love going to dinner parties. I mean, I really love going to or giving dinner parties. Mm -hmm. You'll have to come to dinner next time, come to dinner. Before I had a daughter and a husband, both of which I got late in life. I used to go clubbing, you know, I used to love going clubbing. Mm -hmm. So I don't do so much of that anymore, which I guess (laughs) is a bit boring. But um, I love walking. I love walking or um, cycling. I'm not a sort of fanatical workout person. Mm -hmm. I don't do that. But I love just walking on the beach or walking on the pier, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, What else do I like doing? I like running around town and sort of checking out what's going on. You know, I still like going to see new architecture. Mm-hmm. I never get bored with that.
1: That's a good thing. <laughs> no.
2: and, and art, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and, you know, what constitutes art and architecture. I mean, here it might be street art. You know, there's great street art in L.A. And um, I like cooking. I'm not very good at it. I mean, let's say I have a thin repertoire, but I enjoy it.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the quality of what we do doesn't matter. It's uh, what it brings to our life, right?
2: Yes. I, yes. I,
1: like you, I. I, I mean, it's different, but I enjoy surfing. I'm terrible at it. But it's still fun being in the water. Yes. And just oh, thank age. you.
2: Thank you. I love swimming. I love swimming. If I have time after work, I go swimming. Mm-hmm. But I envy you having taken up surfing because I chose to come to L.A. It is the surfing capital of the world, and I do not have the courage to surf because I got tipped once um, uh, and, on the English Channel, you know, I went mm-hmm. in swimming. I got flipped in a wave. I hit my head on the on the oh, pebbles, mm-hmm. and after that, I've I've ever since I've been terrified of of getting up on a surfboard. That's
1: understandable. So you mentioned something about uh, reading detective stories mm-hmm. that you love doing. That what's the the fascination around those this type of literature?
2: Well, I think I like I definitely like tightly plotted stories. I get very annoyed when there's. Um, when there's like threads in stories that don't seem to have a point, you know, I'm not interested in eloquent sentences just for their own sake. Mm -hmm. I definitely like clear narratives. Mm -hmm. Um, I like a lot of detective stories are very specific to their locale. So they talk about the city they're in. You know, Michael Connolly is a great writer about Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. He has a character, Bosch. I've read all of his books. And he is taking you through the back streets and the underbelly and the police department of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love being taken to these places by these writers. Um, And there's a whole number of detective writers that have done the same for other cities. And I've read quite a few, but please don't ask me their names because I'm now suddenly drawing a blank on all the detective writers that I really like. Like I've read a whole series set in Venice. I've read several that are set in Paris. There's a whole bunch set in Paris by... um, it cara black i think she's called Kara black read her books i've read um, um oh marvellous marvellous books about inspector chen set in shanghai mm-hmm. by um q Zhao long is it q Zhao long i've read his whole series absolutely brilliant and through the inspector chen novels you get to learn so much about chinese history of the last 50 years so for me, the books are not really because I like gory murder stories. It's not that piece mm-hmm. that, that is what pulls me in. Mm-hmm. It's the um, it's the universe that you're taken into. Because mm-hmm. I think they're a vehicle for telling you a lot of other things.
1: Yeah, they are. Uh, I've read a few in my day and they're pretty captivating. right? Yes. It's the kind of book you can't really put down. Um, speaking of a local culture, uh, and I want to go back to architecture a little bit, but In the L.A. context, Mm -hmm. what's your take on the current state of architecture in L.A.?
2: Well, I would say that when I came to L.A. in the late 80s, the work that I saw then was truly fresh and original. It was truly distinctively Angelino, and it was unlike what was going on in London or Paris or New York. Mm -hmm. It had its own set of um, roots, I guess. Frank Gehry was obviously very influential, but you had this convergence of um, cheap land where people experimented with single-family houses. They experimented with cheap available materials. They had a different building tradition. It wasn't highly um, crafted. It was very much more um, makeshift, putting things together more like a stage set. Mm -hmm. There was more of a sort of Hollywood ethos Mm -hmm. that fed into... Really, whatever was being built, mm-hmm. um, and you then had Frank Gehry inspiring many others with this idea that you could draw from artists, you know, and and you could really play with the building's form, um, both in a way that went beyond the modernists, who most certainly were pushing, pulling buildings in ways that were, were a radical break from the from their predecessors. And they're beautiful. I mean, b- really beautiful. LA's mid-century architecture is really beautiful, stunning. Um, but where Frank and then that next generation sort of went with that was to sort of say, LA's this laboratory for residential design. And now what we're going to do is sort of in a way react against what had become a kind of, I don't want to say a doctrinaire, but certainly a rather uniform approach mm-hmm. to buildings. And we're going to, also get these wall pieces of land and treat the house as a laboratory. But we're going to take that formal experimentation to, in a different direction. And it was incredibly fresh because if you remember, but you probably don't remember because you're younger, but back back in the 80s, neohistoricist postmodernism that mm-hmm. was sort of taking over. And then in the UK, you had high tech. You still do. Mm-hmm. You have that in France as yeah. well. Um, and, then, and then you had postmodernism, but it was more, it was more, again, more historicist. It was more Robert Venturi. It was more mm-hmm. sort of playing with symbols of yeah. of old of classic architecture. And what was going on in LA was completely free of all of that. Mm-hmm. So it was it was really really fresh, and lots of people were very taken by it. And lots of people moved into LA mm-hmm. and um, to be part of it. And lots of people in other cities. I think maybe I'm completely imagining it, but my sense is that people, especially like Frank Gehry fascinated people all over the world. And then you had the digital revolution, then you had Zaha, and then you had a whole bunch of folks who were kind of doing something in the same vein, Mm -hmm. as Frank, not exactly the same language, but they were also sort of exploding the box and using the new tools at their disposal. So then that kind of highly liberated, um, um, very free-form experimentation was kind of popping up everywhere. Mm -hmm. So... So I don't feel that what's going on in LA is as kind of radical as it was, but I still think that you've got um, opportunities for doing adventurous versions of what's being built everywhere. I mean, there's there's a lot of multifamily housing going up now. Mm-hmm. Right now, some of it is terribly bland, mm-hmm. but there's exceptions. That are real gems. And there's a generation of architects, Michael Maltz and Lorcan O'Hurley, mm-hmm. La- Laurie, Larry Scarpa, mm-hmm. you know, that are doing really great work in that realm.
1: Yeah, I'm a big fan of those guys. Yeah, they're uh, great, Loha, aren't they? Is, uh, Loha's great. Yeah. Um, and so tying that back into uh, your radio show and, and your job, you have to bridge complex issues and and bring architecture to the general public is that correct
0: Mm -hmm.
1: how do you accomplish that and how do you make make it palatable for your audience
2: well that's why I'm very lucky to have colleagues because my colleagues are not from an architecture background and Mm -hmm. it makes a huge difference because everything that I think of that might be an interesting story I run by my colleagues and sometimes their faces will look completely blank. You know, I'll say, how about we do such and such about this designer who's doing this thing? And they'll say, why is that interesting? And then I'm forced to explain why mm-hmm. it's interesting because they won't necessarily know the references. Mm-hmm. You know, they won't know why this person matters within the architectural world and therefore why we should be talking about him. So I'm always having to justify, and which is a good test. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one starts to home in on stories that make sense to my colleagues. I describe it to my colleagues and they can say, oh yeah, that sounds really interesting. So for example, um, ho- housing for the homeless, mm-hmm. okay? There's a group in LA, that Skid Row Housing Trust, and he's tapped people like um, Larry Scarper, Michael Maltzen, uh, Brooks Scarper, I should say, mm-hmm. Angela Brooks, um, the, his, Larry's partner, worked on one of the really striking projects. Anyway, he brings in... Wait, Killer for Flaman, He brings in really good architects. Well, where do you go with that story? Okay, you can't just describe the building. That's the part that doesn't work on radio. That's the part mm-hmm. that you start to lose your audience because they're zoning out mm-hmm. when you're describing architectural details. <laughs> I've learned that our audience can take about two minutes of description of mm-hmm. the architecture. So you have to find a way to tell that story that brings it alive for them. So then it becomes talking to the residents. It seems obvious, but that's not necessarily immediate of you Then you have to find the resident that talks about living in the building and why living in a building by Michael Maltzen is making their lives better. Mm-hmm. And they tell that story in a very human way and they use, um, use examples. I mean, we did, we did do a building by Michael Malt, one of the Skid Row Housing Trust buildings. And one of the guys who was living in this this complex, had created a garden on the roof and he talked about creating the garden on the roof mm-hmm. and that that sort of became the human story and then a lot of people responded to that story and they responded because it touched something. Mm-hmm. It touched something in them and you heard this guy's story, how he became homeless and then what it means for him to have this little patch of garden on the roof and what it means to hear birdsong in, really in the middle of Skid Row and little things like that, you know, so... You, so you're just finding a different way in. Um, and then with gentrification, what the show does now, we deal with a lot of the politics around architecture mm-hmm. because that's what's kind of, that's sort of the big issue. I mean, every single project that an architect um, presents goes through a battle to get built. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing. That's the other huge difference. Back in 1987, nobody was really noticing what the architects were doing. There weren't huge... Back- well, Frank would say that's not entirely true. He'd say his neighbourhood pushed back on his house, which they did. But once his house was built, that kind of opened the doors. Mm-hmm. Generally, generally there was a lot less constraints. Now there's constraints of cost of land, uh, pushback against development. There's much more design review. There's much more preservation review. So those things came from well-intentioned places. Mm-hmm but they are slightly constraining, mm-hmm. you know. So there was a feeling of anything goes that I think has, has not gone entirely, but I think it's slightly less.
1: S- so speaking of how architects communicate and comparing that to your necessity of your job to make stories in- interesting for your audience, what kind of advice would you have for architects to uh, communicate their ideas better? And and you and I talked about this offline and we're both passionate about the topic, Um, but I just want to touch quickly on things that architects could start thinking about to relate better to their clients and their audience and and anyone who's not an architect.
2: I think if they have a child, they should actually refer back to how they describe what they're doing to their child because that's how they should talk to the public because architects, once they're surrounded by each other, will use the strangest of words like palimpsest, you know, or um, party. There's a whole load of words. They all seem to begin with P actually. Mm-hmm. There's a load of words and I can just see Abishai, my producer, I can just see his eyes rolling mm-hmm. when he hears these words and he's just thinking, how are we going to cut this out? How are we going to cut <laughs> this out in the middle of the sentence?
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: they, I mean, I've sat in on a couple of presentations where five architects have lined up to present a project. Mm-hmm. And I have watched as the, the the client, the person making the selection, has lit up with the architect that talks in a language they can understand. Mm-hmm. And when they are being talked to in that baffling way that architects can use, there's they've lost interest in the project. They're feeling mildly kind of vaguely disrespected mm-hmm. because... Then they're not being communicated to. It's so important. It's so important. And I think, I think architects, they need to be kind of deprogrammed when they come out of architecture school. To they, they've been through a kind of a brainwashing, and now they have to be unbrainwashed. And it's like the Manchurian Candidate. They've been turned into into these mm. <laughs> architecture robots, you know. And um, no, so they have to be deprogrammed and. And what they have to tell themselves is that doesn't make them seem stupid. It makes them seem clever. It makes them seem the opposite. Mm -hmm. It makes them seem like good communicators when they use simple, accessible language. And when they describe what a building will be like, what it will feel like, what Mm -hmm. will be your experience Mm -hmm. in this building? Um, How will it change your life? How will it make it better? How will it... You know, connect to the street, and there are architects that do that. they learn it through trial by fire. Mm-hmm. you know they learn it when they've lost ten jobs mm-hmm. um, but or they learn it because they see there's someone in the office that they work for who happens to be the great salesperson
1: and I think we we can end on that. I do have one more quick question, but the I really like the idea of you know speaking to a four year old five year old child and make sure they understand the idea because it's the it's the shortest way to. Edit it down to the simplest terms without dumbing it down. Right. So, the last question for you you're going to like it because I think it's, it's culturally relevant. Uh, Stones or Beatles?
2: <laughs> Stones. Stones? Of course. <laughs> why, why is that? Oh, God. Well, of course, Mick Jagger's more sexy than any of the Beatles, <laughs> but um, I mean, I think I prefer their, their blues infused songs more than the Beatles although I appreciate the Beatles genius I do my husband absolutely is crazy for the Beatles so we do have this conversation (laughs) fairly often (laughs) he likes the Stones he really likes the Stones but he prefers the Beatles and I'm the other way around I think I love I do love the Stones I love the I love the roots music on which the Stones was built Mm -hmm. the American Mm -hmm. black Mm -hmm. blues which you know should never be forgotten um and also when i was a child growing up in england i came of age after the beatles mm-hmm. and i was the generation that was had had it up to here with beatle worship <laughs> you know and so we that was what our par- our parents were beatle worshippers. Mm-hmm. so we couldn't go that route some other stones they were doing stuff in the 70s that was that was our music mm-hmm. you know it was new music yeah. Maybe that's partly it, actually, that the Stones carried on. And some of their 70s stuff was fantastic.
1: In my opinion, their 70s stuff is their best It's the best. Mm -hmm.
2: It is. So that belonged to us. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's why... I haven't really analysed it, but maybe that's one of the contributory factors. Because by the time I was a teenager, the Beatles had broken up.
1: Mm -hmm. Same for me. I'm of a slightly different generation, but 90s music is what I grew up with, so it's something... I, I've always had this, um, and I've had that, that conversation with many people, I think there's something about the culture that is around when we come of age, like in teens, late teens, that is special for life.
2: Yes, it's yes.
1: It's just some chemistry in the brain or something, I don't know. Oh,
2: d- especially with music. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Although the first music that I became aware of was glam rock when I was um, about 10. That was the first... Music I remember making an impression on me. Mm-hmm. But I agree with you. No, no, the music of that period is, shapes you for life.
1: Well, this is it for us. It was an yeah. absolute pleasure to <laughs> have you on the show. Thank you very much.
2: Well, Arno, it was a great pleasure to be interviewed Likewise. by you. Thank you so much. And
1: I hope we can continue the conversation.
2: We should. Mm-hmm.
0: again arno here if you like this interview be sure to give us a review on soundcloud or itunes this episode was produced by revelator studio edited by ryan octari with music by bounce trio to be notified of upcoming episodes follow us on instagram and twitter at revelator underscore to or sign up for our newsletter on our website at rvltr.studio Keep on supporting creativity and never stop kicking fear in the nuts. Till next time. Ciao.